You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. John chapter number four. Uh, as I mentioned before, and I am, I often do because, well, I was a teacher. So being that I was a teacher, I learned uh, to do lots of reviewing. And so uh, I want to kind of briefly go back and review if I can get over to first John here. I'm struggling. Um, First John number chapter number four and review what we've been talking about. Uh, just by way of a broad scope here, we remember we're talking about producing spiritual fruit. This is the theme of our series here, producing spiritual fruit. But as you know, you can't just force spiritual fruit to happen. I can't just up and decide one day, well, you know what? I haven't had enough smiles on my face. So I need more joy. So maybe I need to, to watch more funny videos or, or maybe I need to just think more happy thoughts and just force that fruit of joy to come out. We can't just up and decide one day, well, you know what? My patience is lacking. And anybody with little kids understands uh, that some, you come face to face with your lack of patience sometimes. My patience is lacking. So you know what? I'm going to pray for patience. Bad idea one. Uh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to try super hard to produce patience. Peace. Ah, boy, I just haven't had enough peace in my heart. Boy, I just feel so much turmoil. I just have so many questions. I just, I need more. You can't just go and enforce the fruits of the Spirit to produce themselves. That's not what trees do. Trees don't make a list and decide what fruit they want to produce, flip a switch, and then produce it. That isn't the way it works. A tree produces fruit based upon the condition of the environment that it is in. If it is in the right environment, it has proper watering, it has proper nutrients in the soil. If the root system is healthy, if it gets enough sunlight, or in some cases, if it gets enough below freezing temperatures during the winter, or enough hours of cold during the winter, then it will produce fruit the following summer. It is a product of its environment in many ways. The fruits of the Spirit are the same way. I cannot just purposefully produce spiritual fruit. It needs to be a product, a byproduct of me placing myself in the right spiritual environment. And so we don't focus there on the leaves as beautiful as they may be and when they're coming out in the spring and when they're going away in the fall. We focus what goes on below ground, the part that nobody can see. You see, I can't see your Bible reading. I can't see your prayer life. I can't see if you're talking to God while you're driving down the road to work. I can't see if you're talking to God when you're doing this or doing that. When you tell me you're going to pray for something, I can't see if you've done that or not. Maybe I can guess one way or the other. Because that stuff is always, that's the root system. That's what's going on beneath the soil. If you are spending time in the Word of God, that's going on beneath the soil. Coming to church, that is good. It is expected. It's obedience. But what you really need to be focusing on is the part that nobody else sees. Your relationship and your walk with God. And so looking at the root system, we talked about, number one, being rooted in Christ. 
Are you rooted in Christ? Is that the person to whom you have sent your roots to? Not yourself, not the church, not a preacher, not some set of doctrines somewhere, but being rooted in Jesus Christ himself. We talked about being rooted in the word of God. We talked about being rooted in Christ's wisdom. We've talked about being rooted in several areas here. And now we look at being rooted in Christ's love to, well, I guess it was two Wednesday nights ago. uh, We said this, that we, we defined love of God and we said that love originated with God and that God orchestrated love. He, he, he. He is the definition of love. If you try to understand love and define it outside of God, then it is no longer love. And, and as a church, by the way, we cannot outlove God. If we try to love the sinner in a different way than God loves the sinner, then that's not, it's not being an example of God's love. How did God love the sinner? He understood that because of how they were living, because of the fact that even simply they were born in sin, Because of their sin nature, they were destined to an eternity in hell and they had no choice in the matter. He understood this. And then he loved the sinner so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself to pay the penalty for those. I cannot love the sinner any greater than that because I cannot give my child to sacrifice for their sins. My child, if my child has to sacrifice himself for sins, he would have to do it for his own. But not Jesus. Because Jesus had no sin for which to sacrifice himself. And so he could shed his blood for our sin. God and love are synonymous. And so to understand love is to understand God. To understand God is to understand love. How did God then display his love? And that's what we're going to look tonight. How did God display his love? If I were to look in the word of God and I were to ask myself, Okay, in what way can I see an outward expression of the love of God? Of course, many of your minds are like, oh, I know where he's going with this one. This one's easy, right? Uh, You don't even need to preach this one, preacher. I already know where you're going with this one. Hey, great, Uh, but stick with me anyways. If you were to ask one another, how, how do you know if your husband loves you? How do you know if your wife loves you? How do you know if your children love you? We all may give varying answers, but they'll be generally the same. It'll generally be based upon what they say and what they do, and more emphasis being placed on what they do than what they say. We look at how they behave and how they treat us as an indication of how much they love us. So then, taking that scripturally here in 1 John 4, we now look at examples of God's love. Okay, so you're in Um, 1 John 4, look at verse number 7. We already read and and went through verse 7 and verse 8 two weeks ago. And so we're going to read it again as review and then read on from there. So 1 John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. It's not, it's an unusual statement. Of course, we hear it. We know it. If you grew up in a church, you hear God is love. God is love. God is love. And it seems natural to hear. But if you stop and think about what that means, I wouldn't say Harold is love. His wife wouldn't say Harold is love. My wife wouldn't say Nathan is love because that's a weird thing to say to equate me with love. Now, hopefully my wife knows and would tell other people that I love her. At least I hope that's what she tells her friends, right? No, when I'm not listening, uh, but she would not equate me to love. 
But this verse equates God to love. And again, the world does not understand what love is apart from God. The best they can do is poorly imitate it. So again, we read here in verse number nine. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so we said God is the originator of love. We said that not only the originator, but he's also orchestrated. He's put it into action. But he's also here in verse number nine, described love or been an example of love to us. Again, look at verse number nine. He says, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Tonight, number one, his love is sacrificial. His love is sacrificial. We look at the word manifest there in number nine. It was, in this was manifested the love of God toward us. Manifest, it's not a word that we often use today. In fact, too often when we use the, man, the word manifest today, we're talking about the occult, uh, something like that. But um, it's not a common word used today. This is what manifest means. Um, varying slightly whether it's being used as a verb or a noun, it means plain, open, clearly visible to the eye or obvious to the understanding, apparent not obscure or difficult to be seen or understood. So to manifest something is to make something known. Okay, what's another way manifest is used? Well, I think of a ship's manifest or, you know, a truck's manifest. A ship's manifest is a list of everything that has been taken and every one that has been taken on board that ship where it was taken on, how much of it was taken on, and where it is supposed to be going and to whom it's supposed to be going. There is a manifest of every single item and every single person on board that ship. And so it should have that. What God is saying here is this. I have a manifest. I want you to see my love for you. And so we get to read, especially in the New Testament, about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, a manifest that is given to us describing in detail to us, his love. I sent my only begotten son into the world so that you could live through him. Now, we, we, we've grown up, so many of us have spent so many years hearing about the love of God, hearing about God's sacrifice, sacrificial giving of himself towards us, that we, we stop realizing it. We stop taking it seriously. The sacrifice, you know, Jesus sacrificing himself, shedding his blood on the cross for our sins. Uh, and, and then it just kind of rolls right off our backs and we don't take the time to think about it. And hey, that's one reason why it's so great that we, uh, you know, observe the Lord's table, not because it gets us any kind of special, um, you know, salvation or any special favor with God, but simply because it may, it forces us to stop and to not be thinking or being distracted by anything else and take a moment to think about Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross, the body which was hung there, which was whipped, and which was nailed, which was scarred, the body uh, representing as well his physical life for which he laid it down, the remainder of his life laying it down at that moment to be killed in great humility. And so when we talk about the sacrificial love of God, 
We can't just take it as a grain of salt. We can't stop realizing the impact of what he did to show us his love. For me, as a, as a father, one of the easiest things to do to kind of remember the impact in the seriousness of it is to consider what it would mean to sacrifice my own son. I remember reading a story one time, and I don't remember where or how I read the story, but it stuck in my memory. A man who uh, operated a train crossing, a bridge, um, he came to work one day and he, his little son came along with him. Uh, for one reason or another, he had a son there with him and uh, it was his job to be watching the river and to be watching the bridge and to raise that railway bridge when ships needed to go through and then to lower it down again when trains were coming through. And he had to be sure to lower that bridge uh, because trains can't just stop on a dime. Uh, he knows when the trains are coming and so he has to make sure it is down when they get there. He tells his little boy, okay, you, got, you can play, you can have some fun, but listen, I don't want you to go down there and play around the bridge. I need you to stay up here in the guardhouse with me. And with that instruction, the little boy went off to play and the gentleman went to go look at his schedule and it wasn't long before he realized, oh, it's time for a train to come and so I need to get that bridge down. As he walked over to manipulate the lever to lower that bridge down into place, he happened to notice that his son was down there. He went and called out the window. He called the boy's name and the little boy jumped. He was scared because he was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing. And of course, that's naturally put them on edge, right? He jumps and he's scared and he, he falls down into the gears of that bridge. Despite his best efforts, the little boy could not pull his foot out of those gears that he fell into. And the man up in the, in the, in the house was, was struck with a problem. He's got his son down there stuck in those gears, which will surely die if he lowers the bridge. But then he's got a train full of who knows how many hundreds of people that will also die if he does not lower that bridge. And he had to choose between his son or this train that was coming, and he did not have time to go and get his son. Obviously, we never want to find ourselves in that position, do we? God understood something when he looked down at his creation, the humans that he so desperately desired to spend time with, that he so desperately desired to know and to fellowship with, and then he saw us sin. He saw us necessarily have to separate ourselves. Really, he had to separate himself from us because of our sin. He saw the problem then. He saw that there was going to be a day where every last one of us was going to have to spend an eternity paying for that sin because God is holy and heaven is holy. And uh, Revelation 21 verse number seven tells us that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth or worketh an abomination or whatsoever maketh a lie. Man, I may not be a defiler or an abominator, but I sure am a liar. And that means I can't, I can't go to heaven because of God's holiness, because he is a just judge. He cannot let a sinner into heaven. And he felt so strongly for the world that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, if I try to put myself in God's shoes, which is infinitely impossible, but if I were to try to, and to think of having to send my own son, not just to die, because to be honest, scripturally, that might have been the easy part. The hard part was to watch all of the sin and nastiness that 
I do in my life, the guilt of that, the shame of that be placed on him. I think that was the, I know that was the hard part. That's what caused God the Father to have to turn his back upon Jesus Christ. That's what caused Jesus Christ to call out to God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he didn't just bear all of my sin and its guilt and its shame, but yours too. And that of the whole world. So why then do we, do we try to take it back upon ourselves if somebody else has already willingly paid for it? Why then does the world willingly take the consequence of that sin back upon themselves? I say all of that to say this. We sometimes just forget the importance. We forget um, just how the, the, the impact of the love that God had shown to us. If you think about eternity, you have the Trinity that was always there. You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They fellowship with one another. In John 17, uh, Jesus, as he prayed for the disciples and prayed for us, he spoke there of the love and the fellowship that he had with the Father before the, or before the world began. But when Jesus Christ took the form of man, the eternal Son of God, miraculously here, he became the only begotten Son of God, sent into the world. John 3.16, well, you know well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God displayed his love by sacrificially giving. And he wants us to live the same way. Now, that'll speak, right? That'll speak, husbands. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. You say, some people complain, man, the wives, they got to submit. The husbands, it just says, love your wives. So they could do that as they walk by the kitchen. Love you, honey. As they walk by to go do their thing, you know, get in the kitchen and cook. Love you, honey. <laughs> no, what he's talking about here is so much more difficult. Love your wives. How are we to love our wives? In what way are we to love our wives? As Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. As Christ loved the church, as Jesus loved the church, that's how much I am to love my wife. Think about this. Jesus stood there before the Sanhedrin, and he endured them making fun of him and lying about him. He endured it with a closed mouth and didn't even speak up for himself. He endured the beating. He endured the whipping. He endured all of those things. Why? Because he looked down the ages and he saw you. He looked down the ages and he saw Shenandoah Baptist Church. And he knew that we needed a Savior. That's how I'm to love my wife. Sacrificially. Putting some things aside that I may not want. Putting some things aside that I may want to be doing, but sacrificially giving it up for my wife. If you have a desire to have a godly love, then you need to remember that godly love is a sacrificial love. And it was manifested to us, according here to verse number nine, it was revealed or shown to us, it was given to us as the best example through Jesus Christ dying on that cross. So if you're going to follow an example of love, you're not going to find it on the Hallmark Channel. Besides, every movie is the same. You saw one, you saw them all, right? 
If you want to find an example of love, hey, don't look at my marriage. You're not going to find it there. If you want to find an example of real love, don't just sit there and point fingers across the table at your spouse and think, well, if they would be loving and if they would you know, really be Christ-like, then I would be really loving in Christ. No, if you want a real example of love that you are to follow and imitate, then imitate the love of God. That's hard. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. If you desire godly love, remember that it is a sacrificial love. I don't know who wrote it. It was an unknown author. He wrote this. Jesus' love did not make God's love possible, but to make God's love visible. Jesus' coming and dying on that cross didn't come to make God's love possible. God's love was already there. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And Jesus' death on that cross, it was to make God's love visible. So verse 10 here in 1 John 4 says this, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means a covering. It's the same word here that is used to refer to the mercy seat. That mercy seat, that was on the Ark of the Covenant there in the Old Testament. The high priest would come in one time a year and he would sprinkle blood there on that mercy seat covering the transgressions of Israel, the transgressions against the law. They were never going to be able to keep the law. The law was there so that they would break it, so that they would understand their need for a Savior, which when the Savior came, they seemed blind to it. But Jesus now, he is that propitiation. He is that covering. No longer does a high priest need to go to any mercy seat and sprinkle it. No longer does any priest of any sort need to go between us and God to seek forgiveness of sins. Now we as believer priests can go before the throne of God ourselves. And in fact, we're told to go boldly before the throne of God and seek forgiveness and seek his mercy and seek his grace and seek his blessings and seek his love. 1 John 2, 2 says this, And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Think about that. John here is speaking to other Christians. And he says, Jesus Christ died on the cross to cover sins, but not just your sins. He says it was a covering for the sins of the whole world. I feel like that just shoots limited atonement right out the door. He didn't just die for our sins, but he died for the sins of the whole world. Jesus shed his blood to be a personal covering for sins for anybody, who, for whosoever will, the Bible says, for anyone who believes in him. You see, the church, its formalism, its rituals, none of those things will provide a covering. The sacraments. Any sorts of prayers, rosaries, uh, praying to saints, uh, you know, your, the last rites, communion, bap, you know, infant baptism, none of those things are going to act in any way, in any, in any way saving. They can't cover. They can't act as a propitiation. Good deeds, being a generally a good person, won't work. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ. Soul winners will sometimes ask this question when you knock on somebody's door. You ask, are you 100% sure 
Are you 100% sure that if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven? You see, we, as we do that, we know that you can go to heaven because the Bible says you can know. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So when we ask, do you know 100% for sure that when you die, you will go to heaven? The answer could be yes, but too many times we hear odd answers like, it's okay, I'm good. Uh, which literally, you know, I want to say, no, you're not. I don't say that though. Sometimes they'll say, no, I've got it covered. Don't worry about me. But according to the word of God, it's his love that was manifested to us that is our covering. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have ourselves covered. We can't have ourselves covered. We are lost in sin without the blood of Jesus Christ. Part of Christ's love to us is also his forgiveness. If you're, remember I said earlier that if you're going to try to imitate love, then you need to imitate God's sacrificial love, but you also need to learn to imitate his forgiveness. It's hard to forgive, isn't it? And it's hard to forgive if somebody's made you mad. And if they've stabbed you in the back, if they've gone around and said things about you, if they've done harm to you or your family, man, it is hard to forgive. And here's the thing. You don't even know their motives. And you don't know any of the other bad things that they have done. You've just got this one or maybe just a small handful of things against this person. And man, the feelings are working against forgiveness. But you see, God, he knew all of the other things that they had done. And he had done all of those things, not just against you, but against him. He knew their, their, their heart's sincerity. He knew their intentions behind all of the things that they did. That maybe they hated you even more than you thought they did. Or maybe they intended to be more mean than they actually were. And God, knowing all of those things, is willing to offer forgiveness to them if they but ask. Am I willing to offer, for, or am I willing to offer forgiveness to somebody who has wronged me? To me, it might seem like something so big, something that hurts so much. But if you look at it again, if you look at your problems through God, through his eyes, our problems suddenly seem so small. And when we choose to forgive in the same way that God forgives, suddenly the hurt seems much smaller too. It's an integrated part of God's love, his forgiveness. In his forgiveness, he puts our sins aside and he doesn't bring them up again. It says in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. If God's not going to bring sin back up again and throw it in my face, I shouldn't be doing it to other people either. Well, you always say this, or you always do that, or you never, or every time I this, you that, or, and we start to dredge up things from the past. Hey, that's not God speaking when that happens. Understand that, husband. <laughs> it's easy to, well, you never have dinner ready, or you never blah, blah, blah. And it's easy to dredge up things from the past that have hurt us, that have never been dealt with, rather than forgiving, dealing with it, moving on. God's not going to do that. Once, once he has forgiven it for, of you, he is going to remove it as far as the east is from the west. Because our sins are covered by his blood. If my sins were covered by the blood of a lamb, like in the Old Testament sacrificial system, then the next time I sinned, I'd have to go and I would have to have another lamb. 
I would have to sprinkle more blood. And on a yearly basis, and even beyond that on a weekly basis, sacrifices would have to be offered for my sins continually. But then Jesus Christ came and he finished it. He fulfilled that system. Sometimes our subconscious record keeping of other people's past wrongs shadow the present. If they offend us, again, we recall all of the earlier times where they offended us, and now it hurts even that much more worse, much more badly because of this new offense. But understand this, that when our roots are grounded deeply in Christ's love, if we take a look at the meaning of love, and then if we try to imitate that love by, not, not just by forcing it, but by putting our roots deep down into Him. It's a metaphor, I understand that. And we've, we've discussed before what that means, to put your roots down deep. And well, like we started back in Psalm 1, this idea of, of being a tree planted by rivers of living water, running those roots down deep into the right source, that source being Jesus Christ, that source being the Word of God. That source being the house of God. That source being the face of God. If we make sure we put our roots down deep in those places, we will produce spiritual fruit. And love is one of those spiritual fruits. So then, how do I produce love? How do I become a, a loving person? Don't ask my wife whether or not I am. And if you do, I don't know, I know the answer. <laughs> you know, how do I become that, start to produce the fruit? Of love. Again, it doesn't come just by trying to force it or imitate it. It comes by putting my roots down in Him because He is love. And His love is faithful. Number two tonight, His love is faithful. Romans 8 35 says this Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, 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 but, but what if you sin enough that you lose your salvation? You see, it didn't say that in the list. This is not an exhaustive list of all the things that couldn't possibly come between you and the love of God. I think he gave enough things here in the list, enough extremes in this list, to help us to understand that there is nothing. Just like when he says there is nothing that can pluck him out of my hand, you can't lose your salvation. You can't, you can't be good enough to keep something you were never good enough to earn in the first place. You can't lose your salvation. And so he says here that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which was in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When you put your head down on the pillow tonight, he wants you to do it with the assurance that God loves you. And I don't, I don't mean that in a trite way. Too often it comes across in a trite way. But God does. Sometimes, you know, you see billboards, Jesus loves you. Signs along the road, Jesus loves you. An airplane pulling a banner through the sky, Jesus loves you. Or an airplane smoke, you know, putting Jesus loves you in the sky. It's been a while since I've seen any of those, actually. But 
And, and it becomes trite almost in our minds. Oh, we see it again, we see it again, we see it again. But if we stop and consider what love is, and it's a sacrificial love, a sacrificial love that is willing to give to the end of itself for the object of its love. And it is a faithful love, a love that doesn't take a rain check, a love that isn't a fair weather love. Just like you said when you, you know, made your vows for rich or for poor, for better or for worse. This is the faithful kind of love that God makes an example for us to follow. God is never going to say to us, if you don't straighten out, I'm going to call my attorney. God isn't going to say to us, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. God wants us to understand this, that his love is unconditional. I tell my children this all the time. You know, even just recently, you know, I want you to know I love you. I love you when you're obedient to me, and I love you when you're disobedient. I love you when you tell the truth, and I love you when you lie. I love you when I'm proud of you and you do things that make me happy, but I also love you when you disappoint me and do things that make me sad. And I just want you to know that I always will. It's unconditional. You don't have to be the best artist to earn daddy's love. You don't have to be the best ball player to earn daddy's love. You don't have to put on your Christianity and look spiritual to earn daddy's love. It is unconditional. And I have the love of God. That doesn't mean that I ought to just go and live however I want. Of course not. But his love is not hinged upon my behavior. His love offered me salvation despite the fact that I could have never earned it in a million lifetimes. And that not one single man could have earned it. His love was unconditional in that way. That's why he had to offer it the way he did. As a covering instead of a reward to be earned. He offered it as a covering for those who could not earn it. John 13, 1 says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. This is a persevering love, a persistent love. I mean, think about Jesus' disciples. Thomas struggled, right? Thomas said, yeah, I don't know about this whole resurrection thing. That doesn't make any sense to me. I've never seen a dead person rise again. I'm, I'm going to say that you guys are making this up or you had pizza way too late last night or something because, you know, this doesn't make any sense. You think about Peter. We just talked about Peter several times recently. Peter, uh, Jesus, I'll die with you. You know, Jesus, if they slap you, they'll have to slap me first. If they, you know, imprison you, they'll have to imprison me. If they crucify you, they'll have to crucify me. Day later. Uh, Jesus, I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. Cursing. I don't know that man. Leave me alone. I don't know anything about him. Before the cock crows, and he realizes Jesus was right. I was going to deny him. But despite Thomas's doubting, his lack of faith, despite Peter's denial of Christ because he was scared for his own existence, Jesus loved Peter. Peter jumps out of the boat and he comes running to Jesus. And Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Peter exasperated. Yes, I love you. Why do you keep asking me this? Feed my lambs. Jesus loved Peter. Peter loved Jesus. And he loved them until the very end. 
Now, see, here in a church, we have people at various degrees of their spiritual maturity. Some have been saved for a long time and have done a lot of growing. Some have been saved for a long time, maybe, and not done much growing. Some have been saved for a very short period of time, but have grown or have stalemated. We find ourselves in various places. And I've said before, it doesn't matter how high up the ladder you've climbed spiritually today. Okay, I'm not going to reward you for how high up the spiritual ladder you've climbed. What matters on this day is whether or not you are still climbing that ladder. Are you still trying to grow spiritually, trying to be more like Christ? Are you putting your hand up to the next rung today? And I hope that that's why you're in church this evening. I hope you didn't come for any sort of blessing. I hope you didn't come because of me or anything like that. I hope you came because you are desirous, that you are seeking something from the Word of God. And you came with an empty cup, just praying, literally praying, that the Lord would fill it today. So that you could take that home with you and you could dwell upon it this week and so that he could change you, even if just a little, for the better, to be more like him this week. Some folks in church may have outward sin in their lives or inward sin. But no matter where we are, spiritually speaking, God loves us to the end. And so tomorrow we might disappoint God. God loves you the end. Would you cast your child to the side because they sinned one more time? No, your love would persist. Do we think God is more spiteful or vengeful than we are? Because he's not. His love is more perfect and pure than ours. He doesn't see it the same way, just like he doesn't see sin the same way we do. He doesn't see us the same way we see one another. Love is defined by God because he is love. And his love was manifested or revealed or showed to us on the cross of Calvary. His love is faithful. It will never depart. He won't withdraw his love from you. There has not been a human on this earth to whom God has withdrawn his love. I know some may believe that if you commit a certain sin that, you know, maybe you've committed the unpardonable sin, which, which by the way, is unbelief, you know, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Some may believe that if you commit a certain sin that, you know, God is turning you over to a reprobate mind and now you no longer are able to get saved no matter what. But God's love endures. And even if he may turn even a Christian, even though the, the verses there are not referring to Christians, but if you were to turn a Christian over or if the Christian were to commit you know, that, that, that final sin that would have to bring on death even, sinning unto death, God's love never ends. God's love is still faithful. It is us who are unfaithful. It is us who are lacking. And praise the Lord. And we can legitimately praise the Lord for this. That his love is not dependent upon me keeping my end of the deal. Because I never could. That's why salvation has absolutely nothing to do with works. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. 
He washed and regenerated us. He's, his blood was the covering or the propitiation for our sins, doing something for us we could not possibly do for ourselves. So we come back to this idea of being rooted in Christ's love again. Once our actions for the Lord are rooted in Christ's love, in the assurance of his unfailing love for us, will flourish. There will be spiritual growth when we send our roots down deep into him and we come to terms with his love toward us. How can we then not, how is, it how is it possible for us to not then reflect that love back out to the other people around us? It will naturally occur. You know what else will naturally occur? If we entertain sin in our lives. And we put our roots down, down deep into that. That is also going to come out in our relationships around us. But if we put our roots down deep in God, Thinking specifically here of the love of God, it's going to be, if, if I'm sitting here thinking about it, and if I'm meditating upon it, and if, if I've taken the time this evening, maybe during the service, to think about the genuine, sacrificial, and faithful love of God, it's going to be really hard for me to not reflect that back out, because it's going to come naturally. And then here's a quote that I really liked. And I thought about, you know, putting it on the Facebook page this afternoon. But I like this. It says this. Love-based service to him has a far deeper resource from which we can draw strength and consistency. Love-based service to him has a far deeper resource from which we can draw strength and consistency. Think about that. My resource that I can draw my um, strength, spiritual strength, and my spiritual consistency to be have a consistent walk with God, to be a consistent husband, father, preacher. I have a, a, a well of resources that I can draw from. Now, hopefully, I'm not just drawing from my own energy resources and my own intellectual resources, my own spiritual reserves. If I tap into God, then I have infinite reserves, ones that will never run dry, ones that exceed my power to produce. And so if I serve the Lord based upon love of God, then I am tapping into resources that are far deeper than my own. And from those, I can draw strength and consistency. So tonight, the love of God is sacrificial. How did Jesus or how did God manifest or reveal his love to us? It was through Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. So if I want to imitate his love, I need to imitate his sacrificial love, not just towards my, my wife and my kids, but towards my brothers and sisters in Christ and towards others around me. When others see my sacrificial love for them, they're going to want to know what's brought that on in my life. But also through my faithful love too. Because God's love is faithful and never-ending and never-failing. And if I were to imitate that same love, a love that is faithful, and it isn't hinged upon how others treat me, but a love that continues faithfully, that's a love the world cannot reproduce. That's a love that the world knows nothing about. That's a, world, that's a love that the world has rarely seen. 
Because too often, even Christians don't have a faithful love. So we look at the manifested love of God tonight and his sacrificial and his faithful love. Tomorrow, or sorry, next Sunday evening, we will look at how to develop this love. To talk about being rooted in Christ, how do I go about as a Christian, whether I'm young Christian, old Christian, been around for a while or new at this, how do I go about developing the love of Christ in my life? That's what we're going to look at next Sunday evening. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.